Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden's preparing for his first trip to Europe since the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, with a stop in Poland on the agenda. What's the White House's next plan of action on the war in Ukraine? A China Eastern Airlines passenger jet crashed in the mountains of southern China. 132 people were on board. Local media reports that there are no signs of survivors, but the exact number of casualties hasn't been confirmed. A federal judge in D.C. is halting a new law that would have let minors get vaccinated without parental consent. He says federal law takes precedence. Satire news company The Babylon Bee is refusing to delete a tweet to get its account back. The Bee violated Twitter's hateful conduct policy by calling transgender HHS Assistant Secretary Rachel Levin a man. The company argues truth is not hate speech. And the WNBA's biggest star is still detained in Russia. What's her legal outlook? Is she a political prisoner? President Biden held a call with European leaders today, preparing for his first trip to Europe since the Russia-Ukraine war began. While there, he'll stop in Poland, a country taking in millions of refugees. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the latest. President Biden's going to the NATO summit this week. The White House is still finalizing details of the trip. He will not go to Ukraine, but just across the border to Poland, meeting with the Polish president Saturday. He will certainly thank him for uh, the efforts and the work that, uh, that Poland has done and the leaders have done there to welcome refugees, to get them settled in Poland for this time being as devastating as the circumstances are. And could the U.S. take in refugees? The White House says the State Department is looking at ways to open our doors to Ukraine refugees. So far, more than three million have been displaced. This, as Ukraine's president warns, that if diplomatic talks with Russia don't meet with a ceasefire, a World War III is ahead. I would say that our view and the president's view is that the way we need to avoid World War III is uh, preventing the United States from having direct military involvement on the ground. The U.S. is taking careful steps to avoid any escalation that risks a broader war with Russia, which is why the Pentagon has rejected enforcing a no-fly zone and has declined to help transfer MiG fighter jets for Ukraine's military to use. Here's Congressman Greg Stubbe on Newsmax, urging his colleagues to be careful about pushing for more U.S. involvement in this conflict. You want to you reach out to the Ukrainian people, but you also have to take a step back and realize that the Americans involved militarily in the Ukraine, that you're instigating World War III and you're just basically doing exactly what Putin wants you to do. But Stubbe's perspective is a rare one on Capitol Hill, even among his own party. There's been a strong bipartisan push for Biden to get more involved. And we cannot hold back, especially at this critical time. The U.S. should help facilitate the transfer of the Polish MiG fighter jets. This bipartisan group visited Poland's border over the weekend and came back with fresh calls for more U.S. action. And I agree with my colleagues that time is of the essence. And one of the things that I'm coming back with is wanting to determine just how long does it take and although President Biden is facing pressure from Congress to help facilitate getting these Polish fighter jets into the hands of the Ukraine military, Biden has not officially changed his stance on this, although he could. The White House today saying that any new proposals from Poland are up for discussion. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. It's been 26 days since Russia invaded Ukraine, and according to U.S. officials, Russia has yet to accomplish many of its operational goals. As the Russian military is directing more long-range fire into Ukraine, the U.S. is accusing Russia of indiscriminate attacks on civilians. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. According to Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby, the Russians have not achieved many and perhaps almost none of the objectives that U.S. officials believed Russia set out to achieve. I, I really don't think it's a useful exercise on a daily basis to say, you know, who's up and who's down. The point is that the Ukrainians are actively uh, and very effectively defending uh, their territory uh, and, and, their, and their people. Kirby then laid out what they believe to be Russia's plans. 
We said this from the beginning, Tara, that they wanted to get after population centers so that they could uh, take control of, of key ports, key cities, key government institutions, and supplant the, 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 the government of Ukraine with one more friendly to Russia, and then basically, over time, erase the sovereignty of Ukraine. He said when you look at what the Russians have accomplished in 26 days, it's not that impressive. And he said that Russian forces appear to be frustrated. Because they are essentially still stalled outside Kyiv, outside Kharkiv, outside Cherniv, um, and so many other places, uh, that they are uh, stepping up their, what we in the Pentagon here call long-range fires, bombardment from afar. Whether that's cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, artillery fire, uh, they're lobbing an awful lot of, of hardware into these cities uh, to try to, to, to force their surrender. Because of this, Kirby said more innocent civilians are being killed in residential areas, in hospitals, and in schools, as he believes Russia's long-range fire is largely indiscriminate. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said the U.S. and its allies will continue to raise the pressure on Putin until he relents. Uh, his economic woes will grow, his financial woes will, will grow, his diplomatic isolation will only increase, uh, and his strategic weakness uh, on the world stage will only develop further uh, over time. The United Nations has confirmed more than 900 civilian deaths, but said the actual toll is probably much higher. Jason Perry, NTD News. NTD's reporter on the ground in Ukraine, Dan Skorvac, spoke to several community leaders in the Ukrainian city of Ternopil. The mayor says the city's churches have become a place of refuge. Ternopil, a city where thousands of locals come together to help those in need. We sat with the mayor, Serhii Nadal, who has transformed 16 of the city's 35 public schools into housing for refugees who left war-struck towns in eastern Ukraine. They don't only live here. We also provide them with everything they need, food, clothing. If people come with animals, we also provide those animals with the food, bedding, and everything they need. There are a number of issues that didn't exist before, but there has never been such cohesion and such unification of the city and the whole country. It's hard to convey. The roles of mayors in western Ukrainian cities, both large and small, have evolved after the Russian invasion. They organized the sorting and distribution of aid pouring in from across the world, coordinate territorial defenses, and house, feed, and care for refugees. Chernobyl has always been a highly spiritual city. We have very religious people, and with the onset of war, people are increasingly turning to God. And today, I thank all the bishops of all the traditional churches that are in our city for their support, because they have not just become places of prayer, they have become centers of volunteering, fundraising, aid delivery, and transportation to all parts of the country where hostilities are taking place today. We visited a church where we talked to Father Martin. He spoke to us as refugees picked up food and clothes that was delivered there from cities around the world. Most of the, the clothes you see here today are from uh, Holland and also from people around town, around our town. Uh, because our church is in the center uh, of our town, uh, most of the people, they just come to our church, to our cathedral, and this has become a hub for uh, aid all sorts of aid. A 15-minute walk from the church, young volunteers zigzag in the basement of the Chernobyl Museum of Science, sorting aid to be distributed to refugees or to be sent to cities in need. Hub coordinator Mikhailo Serotyuk said help is coming from all over Ukraine and the world. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ternopil, Ukraine. The Biden administration is transferring a significant number of anti-missile interceptors to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia says the weapons are critical to defend against attacks by Iran-backed rebels in Yemen. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Senior Biden administration officials told the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. has transferred a significant number of Patriot anti-missile interceptors to Saudi Arabia over the past month. Saudi Arabia has been appealing to get the interceptors since last year in order to shoot down airborne weapons. The report of the weapons sales came shortly after Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen launched airstrikes against Saudi Arabia over the weekend. The Houthis claimed responsibility. 
The military forces have targeted a number of vital and sensitive Saudi Aramco facilities inside the Saudi enemy capital Riyadh, as well as Yavu and other areas using a barrage of winged and ballistic missiles, as well as drones. The Biden administration removed the Houthis from the list of designated terrorist groups after taking office. Saudi Arabia says the attacks targeted energy facilities, including a water desalination plant, a natural gas plant, an oil facility, and a power station. They didn't report any casualties. The State Department condemned the attacks. It was a clear attempt, it seems, to disrupt global energy markets. We know that Saudi Arabia faces uh, significant threats from Yemen and elsewhere in the region. We remain committed to helping our uh, Saudi partners improve their capabilities to uh, defend their country against these attacks. In an email to NTD, the State Department neither confirmed nor denied the weapon sales. They said, quote, the United States has a number of tools available to assist Saudi Arabia to strengthen its air defense capabilities. These include foreign military sales of equipment such as air-to-air missiles. Allison Lee, NTD News. The confirmation hearing for Biden's Supreme Court nominee kicks off today. What issues are senators raising? And what did the judge have to say about herself? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Please raise your right hand. The Senate is kicking off marathon confirmation hearings for Biden's Supreme Court pick. Kentanji Brown-Jackson vows in her opening remarks to be an independent judge who knows her limited role. Your careful attention to my nomination demonstrates your dedication to the crucial role that the Senate plays in this constitutional process, and I thank you. Begin its consideration, the nomination of judge. And lines of support and objection are already starting to show on day one. Not a single justice has been a black woman. You, Judge Jackson, can be the first. Democrats are emphasizing Jackson's role in potentially making history in the high court while defending her record against criticism. For these would-be critics, I have four words. Look at the record. Jackson has successfully navigated three confirmation hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The most recent was less than a year ago when she was tapped for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But despite a seemingly solid path to confirmation, some Senate Republicans don't intend to let her off easy. The prosecutor recommended 97 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave him 57 months. They're raising concerns on everything from her representation of Guantanamo Bay detainees, her ties to a Harvard-related pending affirmative action case, and her sentencing record in child pornography cases. What concerns me, and I've been very candid about this, is that in every case, in each of these seven, Judge Jackson handed down a lenient sentence that was below what the federal guidelines recommended and below what prosecutors requested. And so I think there's a lot to talk about there. The committee's senior Republican also vowed today that they would ask tough questions on Jackson's judicial philosophy. I'll be looking to see whether Judge Jackson is committed to the Constitution as originally understood. Republicans are also drawing a contrast with the spectacle of past hearings for nominees picked by Republican presidents. Now when we say this is not Kavanaugh, what do we mean? It means that Democratic senators are not going to have their windows busted by groups. And the real fireworks are slated for Tuesday and Wednesday. Senators will question Judge Jackson directly for up to 50 minutes each, and during which she will have to defend herself on all the contentious issues brought up today. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. A district court judge recently blocked a D.C. law that permits minors to get vaccinated without parental consent, ruling that it tramples on the Constitution. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Last week, a federal judge halted a Washington, D.C. law that allows children to get vaccinated without parental consent. Under that law, which went into effect last year, minors age 11 and older can choose to get vaccinated, and they don't have to tell their parents. But parents objected to the law and asked for preliminary relief to stop its continued enforcement. Uh, they are filed the lawsuit to challenge the um, D.C. Minor Consent for Vaccination Act as unconstitutional. They all four have submitted religious exemptions to vaccinations, and they're, all their children are minors. Parents sued D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and other defendants. 
Rolf Hazelhurst, a senior staff attorney at the Children's Health Defense and the lead attorney on behalf of the families, says a federal law called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, or NCVIA, takes precedence over the D.C. law. The National Vaccine Act requires that parents shall be given what's called vaccine information statements. This is a, a one-page or it's one page, uh, two pages, um, which explains the risks and benefits of vaccinations. But the mayor's attorney said the federal law didn't apply to children getting vaccines. They said in papers filed with the court, there is no explicit preemption provision in the NCVIA implicating the district's act here, and the plaintiff has not cited any. We reached out to the mayor's attorney for comment, but did not hear back before broadcast. Hazelhurst says the D.C. law is dangerous because a child could have an adverse reaction to a vaccine and the parents wouldn't know why. The mayor has 30 days to appeal the court's decision. Otherwise, the order remains in effect until further order of the court. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The CDC has elaborated on why exactly it removed tens of thousands of COVID-19 deaths from its data tracker webpage last week. Speaking to the Epic Times, the agency said this happened because it was mistakenly counting deaths not related to the virus. According to a COVID data tracking website, the CDC removed over 72,000 deaths. Among them were the deaths of 416 children, amounting to almost a quarter of the child COVID deaths listed by the agency. In an email to the Epic Times, a spokesperson for the CDC said the agency constantly reviews its COVID-19 data to ensure its accuracy. The spokesperson added that the adjustment was made because the CDC's algorithm was accidentally counting deaths that were not COVID-19 related. The CDC didn't announce the adjustment when the change was made, and on its website, it attributed the change to a coding logic error. The Babylon Bee has been locked out of its Twitter account for hateful conduct. The offense was calling transgender HHS Assistant Secretary Rachel Levin a man. The company is refusing to delete the tweet to get its account back and says truth is not hate speech. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Christian satire news company The Babylon Bee has been locked out of its Twitter account for calling a biological man a man. The Bee published an article calling Transgender Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary Rachel Levine Man of the Year. This was poking fun at USA Today for publishing an article naming Levine as one of their Women of the Year. Levine was born as a man and began identifying as a woman in 2011. Twitter said the Bee's account was suspended for violating its rules against hateful conduct. The policy stipulates that Twitter users may not promote violence against or directly attack or threaten other people on the basis of gender or gender identity. On Sunday, Babylon Bee CEO Seth Dillon said on Twitter that they've been told their account will be restored if they delete the tweet. But Dillon says they're not bending the knee and wrote, We're not deleting anything. Truth is not hate speech. If the cost of telling the truth is the loss of our Twitter account, then so be it. Dillon is also encouraging others not to censor themselves and to insist that two and two make four, even if Twitter tries to compel you otherwise. And joining us now is Grace Coulter to tell us more. Grace, it seems issues surrounding transgender ideology have been escalating in recent months. Yes, Steph, that's right. And I expect that this is going to be a big issue during the midterms because a lot of people are not accepting this transgender ideology and feel that it's being pushed on them and that they don't get to refuse it. It's not just on Twitter that we're seeing repercussions for not accepting biological men as women. We're also seeing this in schools, in the media and in female sports. The most prominent example being the case of Leah Thomas, a biological man that identifies as a woman. Thomas recently won the 500 yard championship and uh, a lot of people were unhappy about this but we've had recently uh, the parents of Leah's competitors saying that their daughters feel like they can't speak out because they're going to be called hateful or transphobic and that even their universities have told them to keep quiet and a number of female groups and feminist groups have taken issue with this saying that you can no longer speak or defend women and that they can't even stand up for women's rights anymore without being called uh, bigoted or transphobic or hateful. And recently, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was also flagged on Twitter for hateful conduct 
after calling Levin a man. Tell us about his response to this. That's right. Paxton had also been flagged on Twitter for calling Levine a man. He had shared a screenshot of the USA Today article calling Levine one of the women of the year. But despite being flagged on Twitter, the next day on Friday, he actually doubled down on his comments and called Twitter anti-science and anti-truth. So he put out a statement, and I have it here. He says, Big Tech is not only anti-conservative and anti-Republican, it is now apparently anti-truth and anti-science. I will continue to use all of my power to hold them accountable. And Paxton says he's exploring legal options to stop what he calls their one-sided censorship. Steph? Grace Coulter, thank you. Coming up, New York City implemented various vaccine mandates during the pandemic. And one of them looks set to continue indefinitely. And a Russian Olympian is stripped of her gold medal from the 2012 Games. NTD takes a look at how the Russians keep losing medals 10 years later. All that and more in just a moment. Russia and Ukraine, the largest conflict in Europe since World War II. More than two million refugees in two weeks. Families torn apart. Lives changed forever. A war with global consequences. Tune in for special coverage from our reporters on the ground. Right here on NTD News. New York City has a new health commissioner. He says the city's vaccine mandate for private sector workers will continue indefinitely. The city's school mask mandate for children aged five and under will also remain in place. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. If you want to work for any private business here in New York City, you have to be vaccinated. The city's new health commissioner says he doesn't want to indicate when that might change. He says the mandate will continue indefinitely, even though COVID numbers have been low. I think it's indefinite at this point. Our mandates have been among the most important life-saving policies that we've put into place throughout this pandemic, and it's helped us build up a wall of immunity. Ashwin Vasan is the new health commissioner of New York City. He says he doesn't know at what point measures will be eased because he can't predict the course of the pandemic. He did acknowledge that right now New York City is a low-risk environment. We are currently seeing 14 hospitalizations per day on a seven-day average. So do New Yorkers think the workplace mandate is still necessary? I do think it's still necessary because the whole reason we've had to limit our activity um, is because of the danger of overwhelming the hospital system. And if more people are vaccinated, then that is less likely to happen and there's less likely to be another shutdown. Yeah, I think it's necessary. I think a lot of it depends on your job, of course. Like if you're around a lot of people, then I think it should be required. But if you're just by yourself or with a few people in a cubicle, then maybe it's not so necessary. It's for everyone's safety. If more people don't get vaccinated, then there's just going to be more variants and it's more, it's just further problems. The health commissioner also said that, for now, the mask mandate for school kids under the age of five will stay in place. He says that's because they can't get the shot yet and are more likely to be hospitalized because of COVID than older kids. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia since February when she was arrested at a Moscow airport for alleged drug possession. Russian media said last week that her detention has been extended until May 19th. But what kind of resolution should we expect? NTD's Dave Martin talks with a legal expert. Greiner is a seven-time WNBA All-Star and one of the most recognizable female basketball players in the world who plays in Russia in her off-seasons. But right now, the two-time Olympic gold medalist is being detained there instead, without any access to the American consulate, meaning the facts in her case are coming completely from Russia. Her legal options look murky at best. Aaron Solomon, chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital, says America's legal systems and Russia's are completely different. In the United States, we have something called the rule of law and democracy. And those two things don't exist in Russia. Solomon doesn't think that a Russian citizen would have to wait three months to see a judge. 
He also doesn't believe Griner's May 19 court date will actually happen and calls it a sliding date. Griner makes approximately a million dollars a season playing in Russia, quadruple what she makes in the U.S. Many Russian teams there are owned by Russian oligarchs who are thought to have political power. According to Solomon, that could be an ominous sign. Those team owners haven't been able to get access to U.S. consular personnel, which is what the WNBA wants, and haven't been able to get her out of detention for two months. That should shed light on how serious a matter this is. Solomon thinks the end of the Ukraine war could be key to her release and sees a scenario where her detention looks at least partially politically motivated. If Russia was thinking, let's get a top American athlete that we can hold for political leverage, there was probably nobody in and around Russia on February 19th as high profile as Brittany Griner. The U.S. has repeatedly called for consular access to Griner without any cooperation. Dave Martin, NTD News. Russian race walker Elena Lashmanova has been stripped of her 2012 Olympics gold medal for the use of prohibited substances. The Athletics Integrity Unit made the announcement today. This unit handles doping cases in international track and field. The 29-year-old Lashmanova has accepted a two-year ban retroactive to March of 2021. All of her results from February 2012 to January 2014 have been disqualified. Lashmanova was previously banned for two years after a positive drug test in 2014 and has not competed outside of Russia since. Russia originally won 18 medals, including eight golds in track and field at the 2012 Games before doping violations. Lashmanova's ban leaves them with just seven medals and two golds. Coming up, Southern California officials are showing their support for the governor's proposed conservatory care. The program aims to provide treatment to people who are homeless and struggling with substance abuse. And a late-night high-speed stunt was captured on video showing a Tesla jumping into the air and crash-landing in an L.A. neighborhood. That and more when we return on NTD News. Washington's D.C.'s Attorney General is suing delivery service Grubhub. He says Grubhub exploited local restaurants, charged hidden fees, and used deceptive marketing tactics during the COVID-19 pandemic. He accuses the company of doing this to increase profits at the expense of consumers and local small businesses. The Attorney General alleges that Grubhub ran promotions that falsely claimed to help struggling restaurants in March and April of 2020. He also says Grubhub failed to disclose that prices were higher in the app than at restaurants, listed restaurants that did not sign up for the platform, and deceptively advertised free online ordering. And officials in Los Angeles are showing their support for a planned policy that could forcefully place certain individuals into conservatory care. NTD's Daniel Ho has the story. The Los Angeles City Council announced its support of Governor Gavin Newsom's Community Assistance, Recovery and Empowerment, or CARE, court proposal. The CARE court is a proposal from earlier this month that would force individuals suffering from substance abuse, mental illnesses, and homelessness into treatment and housing. The county board passed a motion and sent a letter to the state in support of the proposal last week. The county board wrote in a March 15th statement that Los Angeles County stands to benefit greatly from the rollout of the CARE court. The board wrote that people with severe mental illness or substance abuse often end up on the streets, jail, or hospitals where they don't receive needed care. Newsom has yet to receive legislative backing for his proposal. If the proposal becomes law, every county in California has to comply with it. L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn said last week she believed there are many questions about how this program was going to be implemented and funded. Supervisor Sheila Cool agreed with the board's motion to support the governor's proposal, but said she is concerned that counties cannot opt in or, frankly, out. Details of the program are still limited. 
The governor said he'll be participating in roundtable discussions with criminal justice reform groups in the coming months. L.A. County supervisors said they hoped the county's public health and justice system could join the discussion. Under this policy framework, such individuals who decline treatment could be placed into a conservatorship. The American Civil Liberties Union denounced the controversial system upon Newsom's proposal of the CARE Court. As part of the motion, L.A. County officials will direct the county's Sacramento legislative advocates to advocate in support of the CARE Court program. California has more than 160,000 homeless people in the state, with the highest population of homeless individuals residing in L.A. County. According to the last homeless count, L.A. County has 66,000 homeless people living on its streets and 41,000 in L.A. City. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Officials in California are making a second attempt at changing how math is taught in schools. The new framework would shift its focus to social issues rather than mathematical mechanics. Two experts are speaking against the proposal. The California State Board of Education published a revised version of its proposed mathematics framework. The new version comes after widespread pushback against the initial version from parents and educators during public comments last May. William Evers, who co-authored a letter of STEM professionals opposing the first version, previously told California Insider that most of the political content in the revision remains the same. There have been a lot of pushback. Uh, there have been two open letters about this uh, math curriculum. One that I co-wrote is uh, partly about allowing advanced students to advance and partly about the politicization of the curriculum and the teaching material. And that's got about 1,200 people. Evers said it injects politics into math. It was designed with a particular political purpose in mind, and that hasn't changed. Similarly, Michael Malioni, former math teacher and founder of SaveMath.net, said most of the sentiment in the first controversial version remains in the new version. And they think that people will learn this better. That's what they argue. And they also think that they need to learn it in the social context. It will give meaning to what they're doing. But they also have a sort of special twist of their own to what kind of context and situation they want to bring up. Lessons include racial questions like comparing low-income black, white, and Latina mothers in different cities. Students are asked to determine fair wages and take social justice action if they find wages are unfair. Lessons do not include political counter-arguments, such as minimum wage hikes leading to layoffs. Malioni said the second draft, like the first, calls for math lessons that rely much more extensively on mathematically unnecessary and wordy language, while claiming they have the interests of English language learner students at heart. They have an idea called situated learning. So they think you can really only learn if you're in some kind of context. And so they want to have lots of word problems and lots of things that seem to be sort of practical applications. Evers compared math questions to those used in Soviet East Germany, where word questions would ask students how many American bombers could be shot down. So far, anyway, they've thought that students should all be in the same classes up to 11th grade, and then maybe they could take some advanced classes. So they're trying to level down. Malioni said the draft uses words like equity and equitable without clear definitions. He added that students in school districts who don't follow the new framework would be at an advantage over those who do. Students would have the opportunity to learn standards-based math content rather than vaguely defined big ideas mentioned in the framework. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. To hear the full conversation with William Evers, visit California Insider on the Epic Times, Epic TV, or YouTube. And a midnight driving stunt gone wrong wrecks multiple cars in Los Angeles. The impressive footage shows a Tesla getting three seconds of airtime, but another car was totaled in the aftermath. NTD's Jason Blair brings us the story. A driver was recorded trying to pull off a dangerous stunt by launching a Tesla into the air at a steep LA intersection. 
The video has been going viral and the police are offering a reward for information on the driver. According to LAPD, the high-speed stunt gone wrong happened just after midnight on Sunday morning. The car can be seen getting about three seconds of airtime before a loud crash landing, then running into two parked cars and several trash cans. Fortunately, there were no reported injuries. The police say the car was a rental and the driver fled the scene, leaving the car abandoned. Everybody came outside to see guys piling out of the total Tesla, getting into other Teslas that had come down the hill and were now waiting. So everybody piles out of the totaled one. Two of my neighbors saw the guy who was driving handle a cat as he was going from one car to the other. Jordan Hook is the owner of one of the parked cars that was a victim of the crash landing. The L.A. musician posted a video showing the damage done to his parked Subaru, saying that unfortunately it looks like his car is done for. And I just put like $4,500 into getting a, a new motor in it last month because I'm a musician and I, I travel a lot, I tour a lot, and this has been a great car. Hook said his neighbors helped him start a GoFundMe page open to people who want to help him replace his totaled car. LAPD has offered a $1,000 reward for leads into the misdemeanor hit and run. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Coming up, foreigners are flocking to Ukraine to help the country fight the Russian invasion. Among them, the son and grandson of communist elites from China. That and more in just a moment here on NTD News. At The Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. A China Eastern Airlines passenger jet with 132 people on board crashed in the mountains of southern China on Monday. The flight was heading from the city of Kunming to Guangzhou, according to China's Civil Aviation Administration. Online videos showed the plane taking a sudden nosedive before erupting into flames. The cause of the crash and the number of casualties are still unknown. Olivia Chan reports. A China Eastern Airlines Boeing 737-800 had crashed in mountains in southern China on a domestic flight on Monday. There were 132 people on board. Media said there were no sign of survivors. And the airline said it deeply mourned the loss of passengers and crew, without specifying how many people had been killed. The plane was flying from the southwestern city of Kunming to Guangzhou. China's Civil Aviation Administration said the flight lost contact over the city of Wuzhou. China Eastern said the cause of the crash, in which the plane descended at 31,000 feet a minute, according to flight tracking website FlightRadar24, was under investigation. Media cited a rescue official as saying the plane had disintegrated and caused a fire destroying bamboo trees. A spokesperson at Boeing said, quote, We are aware of the initial media reports and are working to gather more information. There were no foreigners on the flight, Chinese state television reported, citing China Eastern. Shares in China Eastern Airlines in Hong Kong closed down 6.5% after news of the crash broke. China Eastern grounded its fleet of 737-800 planes after the crash, state media reported. The airline has 109 of the aircraft in its fleet, according to Flight Radar 24. The 737-800 has a good safety record. It is the predecessor to the 737 MAX model that has been grounded in China for more than three years, following fatal crashes in 2018 in Indonesia and 2019 in Ethiopia. Investigators will be looking to recover the plane's so-called black boxes, the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder to help shed light on the crash. 
The Chinese regime's ambassador to the U.S. avoids condemning Russia's actions against Ukraine. He says China will maintain normal trade relations with Russia. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. The Chinese regime's ambassador to the U.S. said China will maintain normal trade relations with Russia. That says Russia remains under heavy sanctions from the West. The sanctions aim to press Russia's Vladimir Putin to stop his invasion of Ukraine. This Sunday, CBS News asked the Chinese ambassador Qing Gen whether China will send military supplies and weapons to Russia. Qing said Beijing is currently not sending weapons and ammunitions to any party, but didn't pledge against doing so. His comment comes as Beijing is under fire for refusing to condemn the invasion. And multiple media outlets reported that the Chinese regime has expressed some openness when Russia asked for military aid. The New York Times reported last month that Chinese officials brushed off American concerns when Washington shared intelligence that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine. The U.S. asked China to help persuade Russia against the decision, but the Chinese regime turned around and shared American information with Moscow. In the CBS interview, Qing also claimed that Xi Jinping called Putin and asked him to think about resuming peace talks with Ukraine. This seems to differ from an earlier New York Times report. That article quoted U.S. intelligence officers saying that China told Russia not to invade Ukraine until after the Beijing Winter Olympics. Qing also scoffed at calls for Beijing to condemn Russia, saying it won't solve the problem. Foreign fighters from over 52 countries are flocking to Ukraine. They're volunteers who left their countries to help bolster the Ukrainian defense against Russia's invasion. Now, the Ukrainian International Legion has a new member, a so-called third-generation red from China's communist elites. I'm at the Ukrainian-Polish border, Medica. I will leave tomorrow to join the Ukrainian International Legion. Yi Chiwei recorded this video before he left for Kyiv on March 14th. The 26-year-old was born to be a successor for China's communist elite as both the son and grandson of Chinese officials. But now he's taking up arms in Ukraine. If we don't protect them, Ukrainians today, tomorrow when they we love, or even when we ourselves get hurt, who will stand up for us? According to Radio Free Asia's report, Yi was in the Netherlands with his friends when Russia invaded Ukraine. That's when they decided to buy some supplies to drive to the Polish town of Medica at the Ukrainian border. But after seeing the refugees at the border, Yi told Radio Free Asia it was hard for him to only volunteer, and he wanted to do more. You could tell that those people were very helpless. There was no place for the children to sleep. It was super cold. Many were the same age as my daughter, which makes me sad. Yi Qiwei published his first novel at the age of 14. China's mainstream media labeled him as China's most talented young writer. Yi says his maternal grandfather was a high-ranking Chinese communist official. But in recent years, Yi has become a vocal critic of the Chinese communist regime. That's after his father, a former state-run banking executive, died in 2016. He was jailed as part of communist leader Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. Now, Yi has left a will behind for his family and left for the battlefields of Ukraine. I'm still scared of fighting, but I think only after you have gone through war, you know what it means, and you won't want it again. Yi said that what a country's people want is simply a good, peaceful life. He also points out that a nation should protect its people, not the other way around. He criticized Beijing for its propaganda, promoting the so-called national interest in its apparent support of Russia's war, and said national interests are nothing compared to human lives. Coming up, the inspirational story of one Chicago woman who overcomes personal tragedies and homelessness to achieve success. She says her love of family gave her the strength to get back on her feet. And Britain's Royal Mint says it has found a way to turn old cell phones and laptops into gold and other precious metals. Find out how in just a moment here on NTD News.
Sometimes life throws you a curveball, or a series of them, and it's hard to stay on your feet. This happened to one Chicago woman, but she says her love for her family gave her the strength she needed to start her own business and get back on her feet. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. 48-year-old Angel Clark owns a thriving business selling wax tarts, used for indoor fragrance. But her journey to this point has been filled with personal setbacks. It all started when she was 32 years old after suffering a mild stroke that cost her her job and her home. When her mother died, her world fell apart. That was really hard on the family because we were all so close. We did everything together, everything. Even though years later, this still hurt. Clark and her four children became homeless. While staying in government housing, she searched for a skill to get back on her feet. So I learned how to make soaps, melt and pour soaps, co-process soaps, and I enjoyed it. So that was the humble beginning of her company. But a string of medical issues and unfortunate events pushed her newfound passion to the back burner for years. In 2016, Clark suffered a massive stroke, which paralyzed her. When people tell you um, if they survive something traumatic, um, health-wise, and they were like, oh, my life flashed before my eyes. It did. I, my life is my children. I had to fight because they needed me. She endured the difficult rehabilitation and recovered from paralysis in a month. When I got home, I seen all of my creations staring at me and I knew I had to get back into it. So uh, I found out, oh, you're gonna need a website, you're gonna need this, you're gonna need that. How are you gonna get this money to do these things? Oh, go to a pop-up shop. One pop-up shop at a time, then on Facebook, Clark began making money and then became independent. Today, Angel Clark's business is flourishing. Arlene Richards, NTD News. After a two-year hiatus due to the pandemic, St. Patrick's Parades returned to Holyoke, Massachusetts and South Amboy, New Jersey. Our NTD reporters have more. This weekend saw the 69th annual Holyoke St. Patrick's Day Parade. The annual parade first began in 1952 and attracts about 400,000 spectators. This year's parade scheduled tens of thousands of marchers 25 to 30 floats, and as many as 40 marching bands. The nearly three-mile-long parade route took almost three hours to complete. Expectations are a huge amount of people on the parade route. Everybody very excited. Everybody is very happy that the parade is back. We're very happy for the music, the floats, and the people to smile once again, and the kids to get excited about looking at everything that we have in the parade this year. We've added a lot of new things. Uh, so hopefully everybody will be fully entertained for the two years that we were not on the parade. Some groups traveled from other states like New York and Pennsylvania to join the celebration. In 2019, the Tianguo Band from New York was awarded the most outstanding line of march. I think it left a really great impression that they invited us back and also moved us up. Uh, and it, it's kind of prestigious to be like close to the front of the parade. So I think it's, uh, it shows you, uh, from, even from my perspective, just how much the band has improved to, be, to, to get like a, an, a, a prestige to, to march in front like this. This is great. It's interesting to see how Americans celebrate my culture back from Ireland because it's a little bit exaggerated, you know, because it's a special day. So Irish people don't walk away around in green every day, you know, but it's cool to see in a, kind of an exaggerated form, everyone being sort of excited about my culture. And on the warm weekend, New Jerseyans felt the same excitement when the South Amboy St. Patrick's Parade took place. This parade is one of the biggest events in South Amboy and one of the largest parades in the state of New Jersey, with over 23 bands and over 2,000 marchers. So the significance is uh, celebrating my heritage. <laughs> Do you think why the tradition is so important for people today? Uh, um, 
it's just bringing everybody together in South Amboy. It's a great day. Actually, all holidays mean something to all of us. We're all one. And all of us, we come from different ethnicities, but we're all supposed to celebrate all of us. That's the point. Celebration. And uh, uh, do you think why the tradition is important for people today? I think tradition is the best thing for us. It, ritual and tradition makes us, makes us a big community. After two years of pandemic lockdowns, people really cherish the opportunity to join the community and celebrate traditional festivals. On St. Patrick's, everyone is Irish for a day. From trash to treasure, Britain's Royal Mint says it has found a way of reclaiming hundreds of pounds of gold and other precious metals from electronic waste, such as mobile phones and laptops. Let's take a look. Gold and silver are highly conductive, and small quantities are embedded in circuit boards and other hardware, along with other precious metals. Most of this material is never recovered, with discarded electronics often dumped in landfills or incinerated. The more than 1,100-year-old British Royal Mint said it had partnered with a Canadian startup called Exeer, which has developed chemical solutions to extract the metals from the circuit boards. All of the disused electronics around your home, that represents about 7% of the world's gold. That is a huge number and really gives us the initiative and the imperative to start recycling those electronics. It plans to build a plant in Wales to process hundreds of tons of e-waste and extract hundreds of pounds of precious metals. On Monday, gold prices rose as fighting in Ukraine boosted demand for safe haven bullion. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.